0: And methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Cal, we have another fantastic guest today. Everyone listening, please welcome Chris Edwards, all the way from Colorado. Chris, how's it going?
1: Good, man. How you guys doing?
0: Good. Thanks for joining us. So I want to start with a question. What gets you excited about life?
1: I think what gets me excited about life is the opportunity to serve my fellow humans, to serve God, and to have the opportunity to play with my reality and create a better life for myself. And I think business is a great outlet and tool to meet all of those things that get me going.
0: Right on. That sounds like a cool perspective. So what do you mean by create your own reality? Did that come from growing up with video games? I'm curious, because I find it is like a very entrepreneurial thing. But also, when you play video games, you get to see that there are different worlds and different ways of thinking, right?
1: Yeah, no, that's interesting. I haven't thought about that particular point. But yeah, I did play a lot of video games growing up, spent a lot of time Playing my PlayStation 2 and my computer. So I guess that probably had some influence on me.
0: Were you a SOCOM guy? I was a huge PS2 addict, by the way.
1: (laughs) I did play a lot of SOCOM, yep, for sure. Oh
0: my. So Cal's the F1 guy. I'm the SOCOM guy. So for our listeners, so I'm like 12 years old. I get the game. Shout out to one of my best friends, Richard. He won the network adapter at like an E B games, which is like a GameStop. And then he ended up giving it to me because I had broadband, right? So this thing did not leave my PS2. And then I remember a couple years later, I actually got into the SOCOM 2 beta and played that one and two were the best, of course, I think it was like eight hour days for at least five years. So that was like the last love of my video game career. And you must have been part of a clan.
1: I actually didn't have SOCOM at my house, but I spent like hours and hours and hours in my friend's house. So I was kind of like the non-cool kid that didn't have SOCOM because I didn't have the hookup for online gaming. So we played at a ton of my friend's house. But yeah, SOCOM, I mean, I loved RPGs. I played a ton of Diablo when I was a kid. Diablo 2 was like my probably main addiction. That was my favorite. And yeah, so I mean back to your question i think video games probably had some influence on me but you know for me creating your reality comes from just having experimented with it once you try things and you see them work out and you see that you know your surroundings and your life is a little bit more malleable than you probably once thought you kind of become more intrigued as to what you can and cannot do in life and you start to experiment and for me you know this foray into entrepreneurship through acquisition And running this business was a great way to kind of play and tweak with my reality a little bit more and see what I can do for myself and kind of break out of the matrix, so to speak. With my previous life, which was a very tracked life of school and then corporate finance and consulting, you're kind of climbing the ladder and you're staying within this narrow confine. And this was for me a way to kind of break out of that and see what I can do in the entrepreneurial world and with my own life.
0: Yeah. And where do you think thoughts come from? I know it's like a strange question, but I just want to know because I studied a bit of philosophy and I think you have to go through an awakening process if you're going to take a different path. And you touched on a good point, which is you're more malleable in life and we always think we're doing the right thing when we're on a track. But is it really our own thinking, even if it's the best of intentions of our family and friends and
1: motivation for a better life? What makes someone pull the car off the rails and just do their own thing? Where do thoughts come from? I would say that probably most of our thoughts are just a repeat of what we've been exposed to in our lives. I would say that the mind and our thoughts are more or less sort of a recording of experiences and biases and traumas that we've had in the past. So really, I think more than anything, I think our minds are just kind of like a record and sort of a tape player of things that have already happened. So when I came to that realization, sort of the natural next question is, okay, if I think that I'm just sort of playing things on repeat over and over again, and I'm more or less just kind of stuck in my own rut in my mind and my thinking and sort of the way I view the world, then it kind of begs the question, then what else is out there? What else can be discovered? How can I reprogram my mind and my surroundings and my life in such a way that I find more suitable for myself? We kind of all have those yearnings and that sort of anxiety at times that comes from not discovering new things and comes from playing things on repeat over and over again. We implicitly know, and I think intuitively know, that there's more... That can be known and more that can be discovered and more that can be tweaked and reassembled in our lives. But we just kind of have this comfort of playing things on repeat that we understand and we know over and over again. So I would say thoughts mostly are probably just repeating things that we had in the past. But then we have these other greater urges and these other yearnings. And we have these more powerful emotions that kind of steer us into new directions. And sometimes you have to have the bravery to just listen to them and act on them.
0: What was that? point in time where you decide to switch from corporate finance to your new life. Do you remember that day?
1: Yeah, I actually do. So it was about a year ago. I was at home. You know, We were locked down, quarantined. I was actually in consulting at the time. So I had been traveling all around the country doing salesforce.com projects. So you know, I kind of always had fantasized about being an entrepreneur. I come from an entrepreneurial family. So that's kind of always been in my DNA to some degree. But what happened was I had been looking and researching about entrepreneurship through acquisition and small business acquisitions and sort of the possibilities and the reasoning why that could make sense. So I had been studying it quite a bit and thinking about it a lot and wondering if this was a good path for me. And it kind of always made sense. It was actually just past my birthday about a year ago. I turned 30. And I was just like looking around at my partners at Deloitte, the people that I was working for. And I was like, you know, I don't think that this is a path that I'd want to be on. If I work hard for the next five, six, seven, ten 10 years, I might make partner. I might not make partner. And is that really a life that I want? And I you know, asked myself some pretty deep questions and decided that that was not something that I wanted to do. So, you know, again, i had always kind of had it aching to go on a more entrepreneurial route and I have friends that have done it. And I decided to just quit my job and I go for it. I was gonna burn the boats, so to speak, and take the island. I was just gonna make it happen. So it was kind of like a, a moment of commitment, I think, for me that really made me take the leap, quit my job, make it happen, and have that sort of leap of faith that it's gonna work out. And I believed in myself enough to make it happen.
2: I love stories like these because a lot of times, just to myself, I wonder is it the best way to actually do what you've done. Because sometimes I think taking the leap of faith and knowing that this is what you really want to do, you will succeed eventually because that's your one option. You want it badly enough that you go for it. And I always admire a story like that. A lot of people sometimes could fail in the sense that they usually would have a plan B. I'm not saying not having a plan B is a good idea. But normally, if you know this is really what you want to do, and obviously you made a decision with conviction, that's definitely admirable. and. I believe personally is usually a recipe for success. So how long have you been working with Deloitte or with a corporate job, let's say?
1: So I had been working for seven and a half years, started in corporate finance. I did FP&A, I did investor relations, I did a number of different roles. I then moved to consulting about three years ago and did that for about three and a half years. And I had a fairly successful corporate career. I was comfortable was making a good amount of money. It wasn't like it was a bad life. I had a good life. I'm glad I had those experiences and I had the validation of succeeding in that more structured environment.
2: And that I'm sure, like you said, you've had a fairly successful path up until the moment you left. So that definitely inspires confidence. For John and I, we worked together in sales about seven years ago. And we always thought if you're good at your job, especially if you're good at sales, you can really be good at anything. And with your expertise within consultancy has definitely helped you perhaps with what you're pursuing now, which do you mind sharing with us a bit more what you started doing?
1: Yeah. So right now I own and operate a flooring business. So we're a retail flooring store. And we provide flooring and installation services. We mostly focus on residential work. We do some commercial work, but most of our work is residential. So we do about three and a half million dollars of revenue. And to your point about skills translating over to small business, I would agree in the sense that having the sort of polished skills that you get from a corporate environment, whether it be financial modeling, whether it be sales skills, whether it be how to manage up, how to manage your boss, how to manage customers. You know, those things are skills that are super valuable. And I agreed would translate well into a smaller SMB environment like the one I'm in right now, where there's a little bit more checkered, Backgrounds. There are people who may not have the sort of same educational opportunities that you and I had. They may not have come from as successful of homes as you and I might have had. So, you know, it's a very different world. Yes, those skills translate, but then also there are a lot of things you have to unlearn about your life and your experiences and what you've sort of been. Condition for with, you know, school and maybe you got an MBA and maybe you worked in a big corporate environment like I did. There are things you kind of have to unlearn. You have to learn how to operate in a much more hectic environment with maybe some more difficult personalities and more fire drills that come in the form of someone's house is now unlivable and you have to deal with that. So the challenges are different. They require a different skill set, they require a little bit more grittiness than we kind of get. In our more tracked professions and educational lives. So, for me, I've had to adjust a lot of the ways that I've operated and the way that I think and the way that I've managed people. And that's been a lot of unlearning as well as translating the skills that I did have to this new environment.
0: Yeah, right on. First of all, congrats. That's amazing. I think 3 million revenue in what sounds like under a year is fantastic. So, do you remember your first customer? Was this also a business you started ground up or did you go on? Like one of those buyabusiness.com microacquire, for example?
1: Yeah. So I bought a business. The business that I bought had been around for 14 years. It had done three and a half million in revenue. It was growing at a decent clip, call it five, 8% annually for the last five years. It was doing about 20, 25% EBITDA margins. So I bought the business because I believed in the small business acquisition model where you acquire existing customer base, employees, you acquire a business that has traction and momentum and clearly has product market fit. So to me, acquiring a business was a much more attractive route to go than starting from scratch. My parents had done the starting from scratch entrepreneurial route. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do. You know, I watched them struggle with that. And I decided that it makes sense to go and buy a business for a low multiple that's already cash flowing that already has a proven model go and grow it and you know use the existing momentum to create value from there
0: yeah i think one of the best confidence building things is leveraging you know you have a unique lens which is you can put your pulse on a business and say this is valuable and i can grow it there's so many ways to do it whether you buy something or go from scratch i think you have to have the confidence in yourself like you said and just wanted to point that seems like a very common theme so cal was asking and talking about success i think that's one of them for sure it's almost like undoubted it's just unwavering it's very clear this is the thing to do and then you do it so do you mind me asking what the business was bought for maybe our listeners can learn you know how to negotiate a deal i was gonna say what's that pitch like because you do it for a living so I'm guessing you maybe go under market so you're ahead of the game, you know, traditional sales negotiation. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I bought the business for about 2.2, 2.3 times its last year's cash flow, SDEs, what they call it, seller's discretionary earnings, and what that means is basically just EBITDA plus whatever salaries and benefits that the seller gets out of the business. So, I acquired this for a fairly low multiple. It was doing about 750K of SDE, and i wired it for 800K, depending on how you look at it with COVID and sort of backing out those kind of one-timers. And I bought it for 1.75 million. I financed it with 10% equity, 10% seller note, and 80% SBA debt. So it was a highly levered investment. And so far, the thesis has proved out. We're growing the business. The cash flow is there that we saw during due diligence. So it's a healthy business. We're continuing to delever the balance sheet. As far as negotiating the purchase price and all of that, I don't know how many people you've had on your podcast that have acquired small businesses, but it's a very challenging thing to do. It's an emotional experience for the sellers. It's an emotional experience for the buyer. It is a very difficult thing to come to an agreement on just because there's so many moving pieces. You have to think about you know, how do you incent the employees to stay? How do you think about the valuation of the business? How do you think about working capital? How do you think about the transition plan? So there's a lot of things that go into making this deal come together. In my case, the seller was an older man who had some health problems, And was looking to exit out of the business that he had been running for 14 years. So it was an emotional roller coaster. As anyone who's bought a small business will tell you, there's a lot of times where the deal you think is completely dead and there's no salvaging this. But then you kind of have a meeting of the minds. You have a broker who kind of helps cool emotions down. And eventually we got the deal done. But it was a fairly rough due diligence period for me. The seller had a lot of health problems and had some challenging personality traits, let's just say. And so that combined made for a lot of contentious calls, a lot of moments where you think the deal is dead, but eventually we got it done.
0: Yeah, we've had at least one other small business person on here. And yeah, why I ask is because you have like the super skill of your background and you can get technical and maybe take a measured approach. And by the sound of it, it wasn't a confusing cap table. You just kind of went to the bank and said, here's 10%. And then you had talked about 80% debt. Can you walk us through that structure in a little bit more detail? Because I don't think I know many people personally buy businesses like this and lever it and not use your own money.
1: For sure. I mean, so if you just look at the opportunity that's on paper, let's say you were to buy the business for 100% equity. So let's just use round numbers and say, okay, if you buy a business for, let's just say 2.5 times just for round numbers, that's over a call it 40% IRR on an unlevered investment. So let's say you do a $2 million acquisition, you buy it for 2.5 times, quick math, that would be 800K of EBITDA. So then 800K of EBITDA on a $2 million acquisition is a 40% IRR. But then once you throw debt on top of it, that really juices your returns that you have on paper, right? So I mean, right now, you know, I put about $200,000 into buying this business. And it's going to spin off probably around 750 K of EBITDA in a year. So that's one way to look at it is that that's like a 300% return on your equity in one year. Right. And so that's a pretty compelling opportunity. There's not many markets and there's not too many opportunities out there that provide you the potential of such high returns. So just on paper, it makes sense if you can buy something that's that low of a multiple. Now, there's a reason why these things are a little multiple, right? I mean, they're small businesses, they could go to zero, you could have key employees leave, you could have competitors come into the mix, you could have economic shutdown, there's so many different things that could basically make small businesses go to zero, which is why you have to be very thoughtful about what small businesses you want to acquire. You know, for me, I looked at a lot of different businesses out there, this one was compelling to me for a number of reasons that we can get into if you'd like, but you know, just on paper. I had the conviction that I think I could operate this thing, that I think that we could grow it, that I think we could you know, make this store continue to be a profitable enterprise. And that's why I had a conviction to lever it up so much. And I only put 10% equity down and that's a very, very aggressive cap table. So 10% equity, 10% seller note, which means that I owe the seller a monthly payment in the form of debt for the next 10 years. And then 80% SBA debt. SBA debt is you know, a pretty attractive loan for small business acquisitions. So the terms on that are favorable. You get a pretty attractive interest rate, and it's amortized over 10 years. So you got 10-year paper on this deal. And having it guaranteed by the SBA is a pretty good way to go for deals like this. So that cap table is super aggressive. But again, I had done my homework. I'd done obviously a lot of due diligence in the business and I came to the sort of conclusion that if I'm going to go for it, I'm going to try to go big, lever up and make it happen. And so far the thesis is playing out.
0: That's just fantastic. Kudos to you and a couple of things to unpack here. So for our listeners, you know, anyone out there investing in crypto, you make 3X in a year, you're probably going to be happy. But the thing I love about this is that. This is 3x at a stable, if not growing return every year. Like you're going to be making that money every year on the 200K. So if you start to grow this and you can almost leave it on autopilot. And then would you maybe pull out some cash as dividend payout and then go buy a second okay. business? Like there's so many ways you can almost copy and paste this model, maybe start a big acquisition company to just buy more, I think is really exciting. My next question is. The whole buy and sell thing. So, the first being the sales guy in me, although he was a strong personality, he did have a motivation to sell. You know, it's not like you came knocking on his door pulling teeth. But number two, as you said, maybe it's a very niche market. As I said, I don't know how, that many people buying businesses. So, maybe you're the only buyer or maybe you're one of few. So, I think those are, you know, some advantages there. And imagine you had put 100% equity, like you said without ever being in the flooring business, probably very dangerous, right? And if you didn't, just as a risk assessment for people listening, like go tell your five closest friends to go buy a business with a hundred grand or a million dollars. Most will say, no way, I don't have the money or it's too risky. So can we talk about your thought on risk and why 10%, why not five or 20? What made that number good? Was it strategic
1: Um, so I mean, there's kind of some requirements with the SBA. So the SBA requires that you put 10% equity down. So I couldn't have put 5% down, I couldn't have gone more aggressive, you know, with why not more equity. I mean, like I said, I kind of had the conviction that I would rather be more aggressive with the financing than not. I was in a position that I could put more equity down if I needed to. For my own personal financial reasons, I didn't really want to put more equity down for tax reasons and things that are a little probably too tedious to get into. But My thought was, okay, this is an attractive loan. It's 10-year paper. And when you think about risk, when you're buying a small business, you have to think about your debt service cover ratio. It's like DSCR is the metric that they call it. So it's like, how much EBITDA does the business generate in relation to your annual debt obligations? So banks look for 1.5 times DSCR. So think about it for round numbers again. In order to buy a business, have a debt obligation of a million dollars a year, the bank wants to see that you're generating one and a half million dollars of EBITDA a year. So for me, the opportunity that was on paper was more like three times DSCR. So I had plenty of cash generated by the business to cover a very aggressive financing structure that was what gave me the comfort that this was going to be a sound investment from a risk perspective. It's still very risky. Believe me, I had some sleepless nights where I was like, oh my gosh, I might've just way overlevered I mean, over my head. I don't know flooring. I don't know the market X, Y, and Z. I had a lot to learn. So there was some sleepless nights and a lot of risks that I took, but you know, really the business on paper could have declined in revenue. And I still would have been able to cover my debt obligations. So with a business that was continuously growing and was experiencing a growth phase that was stable with its cash flow production over the last four years and was clearly able to meet the debt obligations as it was, even if I didn't grow it. And even if it did decline 40%, I would still be able to cover my debt obligations. That's what gave me the comfort to go and aggressively finance the deal.
0: Right on. That makes a lot of sense. And so just to tie in the last point about risk. So you sign a mortgage, you're beholden to the debt. And if you have to exit and sell, you know, like 08 housing crash, that's put a lot of people in the bankruptcy. So are you personally guaranteeing this business? Was that all, you know, as you said, the risk was measured, but in an absolute apocalypse scenario where you lose all your customers, the business is not salvageable. Are you basically out of luck? And then you have to kind of figure things out.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's a personal guarantee that's on my head. I mean, that's what kind of deters a lot of people from doing this because the opportunity on paper makes a lot of sense. But then when you think about, okay, I have to get a loan that I personally guarantee for and I can't discharge the loan. I can't declare bankruptcy on this loan. So it, in no way am I able to get this loan off my head. So it's a very scary thing. I'm still early in this journey and I'm only eight months in. So I still have a lot of debt that's on the balance sheet of the business. But again, like now that the p P&L and is playing out and I'm seeing that the thesis is working as I had hoped, I'm able to sleep fairly well at night. But again, it's still a lot of debt on my head. That's a personal guarantee. That's something that I had to get comfortable with. And anyone who wants to go down this route has to get comfortable with.
0: For our listeners, can you explain EBITDA? Because I think there's a lot of non-finance people out there who might be tuning in.
1: Yeah, so EBITDA is kind of the main metric that private equity and bankers look at when they evaluate a business. So, EBITDA means earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. What it basically does is normalize how much cash flow does the business throw off when you get rid of these things that are either dependent on your tax structure. That are dependent on how you finance the business in the form of interest. So if you have a highly levered investment like mine, I'm going to have a lot of interest, but that might not be the same amount of interest that someone else would pay for the business. right? So it's basically backing out interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Depreciation and amortization being non-cash expenses. So you depreciate a vehicle, that would be considered a non-cash event you show an expense on your P&L, but it's not actually you know, a cash event where you're paying to depreciate your vehicle. Now, some people would argue that depreciation is a cash expense and that you should account for that. And I would agree with that in an asset-heavy deal. But in a deal like mine that was not asset-heavy, you can back out yeah. depreciation and amortization and feel comfortable that that's what the business is actually spending off cash-wise.
2: You mentioned earlier that you have some things that you found quite appealing to the business. Now, was your choice of this particular business purely financial and the numbers worked out to your favor and you figured that this could work? If there's any other factor. The second thing is how involved are you, if you don't mind me asking, with the business itself in terms of the day-to-day operations?
1: It wasn't purely just a financial decision that made me buy this business. I love, the area that I live in now, my wife and I love living in Colorado. So we wanted to stay in Colorado. When I was doing my search, I looked for businesses all throughout the Rocky Mountain region of the United States. So Arizona, New Mexico, all the way up through Idaho, Montana, and kind of looked at all things that were on the small business market that were being marketed for sale. So I focused on brokered searches. I focused on geographic criteria that I just mentioned, and then also financial criteria. So when this business presented itself and I started doing due diligence, it made a lot of sense from a personal perspective, because I really love this area. I love being outside. I love the mountains. I love you know being close to family. So that was a really big thing for me. Lifestyle wise, it's an awesome place to live. So it wasn't purely just financial, although that was a pretty big driver. As far as my involvement in the day to day, I'm definitely involved pretty heavily right now. Like I said, I'm still early in this journey and I have a lot to learn still. So I am sort of acting as the general manager of the business right now. I'm on the sales floor, I'm talking to customers, I'm going out and doing bids. I am, you know, doing accounting, I'm doing inventory, I'm hiring people. So there's a lot that I'm doing. So I'm very much actively running the business day to day that requires a lot of time and attention. So I'm putting in, you know, 60, 70 hours a week to make this thing run.
0: Right on. And I'm not trying to test your knowledge here. I'm genuinely curious. My basement has a very basic vinyl floor on concrete. Is there a good floor I can replace it with? I've heard of subfloors, and I'm not trying to like, you know, throw a fast one. I'm just curious, what's the modern technology best value for dollar that I might want to look into in my local market?
1: So, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that. I mean, I would say that for me, I just installed luxury vinyl tile, LVT in my house. It's a product called Cortec, which is made by Shaw. It is really what we sell a lot of up here. I live in a very arid area, a lot of snow, a lot of precipitation. It's dry and our climate is very hard on wood. So if you wanted to go with the hard surface products in where I live in Steamboat, LVT is a great way to go because it doesn't expand and contract like wood does. It's scratch-proof. It's waterproof. It's really kind of a solid product for an active lifestyle. If you have dogs, you have kids running around, things like that. So it really just depends what your preferences are. Some people insist on having wood and that's just a personal thing. And I get that. So I would say that if you were to hold my feet to the fire, I would say LVT is probably the way to go for your basement. But again, that's just kind of based on my own personal preferences without having dug too much into your requirements.
0: Yeah, right on. And I really admire that, that you jumped into the business. And like you said, you're on the floor, you're basically touching every point. And I think it's important because unless you know how to do everyone's job, at least, you know, 60, 80% of the way, how could you know if they're doing a good job? And as you said, you know, customer retention is super important. And I've seen businesses with new management fire the whole store or really make it not fun to work with some crazy kind of policies. So I think the benefit of just being uniquely you and you seem like a very thoughtful kind of guy and want to grow it in a good way, I think that's great. And what are the next steps from here? Do you guys spend any money on advertising? Where do you grow? You're gonna be on the news, the radio, online, you know, Twitter. How are you gonna grow the business? What's the next 12, 18 months look like?
1: So the first year I've really subscribed to the notion and the philosophy of doing no harm. So when you buy a business, the last thing you want to do is come in hot and change a bunch of things and piss people off and be the new hot shot who's trying to shake things up even though you don't know what you're doing yet. So my stance and posture since I've taken over the business and will be for the next few months is to just continue to learn from the employees that have stayed and be kind of a sponge and absorb everything that they've accumulated over the last five years or however long they've been here. So I really haven't made a ton of changes to the business since I've been here. I mean, I've made some operational enhancements and I've brought a lot of new technology and processes that have made things a lot more efficient to the table just because the old way that the previous owner operated was not going to be conducive to success for me. So I made some changes there, but over the next 12 months, you know, really what I want to do is stabilize the management team. I want to make sure that we're set up to grow our installation capabilities to continue to deliver the lowest prices to our customers and the best service to our customers. So I wouldn't say I'm going to make any huge wholesale changes to the business right now. It's really just continuing to learn and make some tweaks to continue to do what we do best. And you know, over time, I could see myself in the more medium to long term having some sort of adjacent home services businesses that are synergistic with flooring, whether that be granite countertops, whether that be window coverings, things of that nature, sort of expanding into those markets. But right now, my main focus is just being the best flooring store that we can be.
0: Super proud of you. That's awesome. It seems like it's really going really well. And do you find that you've got a lot of contractors or is it actual residential clients coming in? I'm curious who buys flooring to begin with.
1: Yeah, most of our customers are retail customers that come in and, you know, looking to redo their basement, looking to redo their living rooms. We do have a lot of relationships with contractors around town. Steamboat's a small town. We have a lot of existing relationships with the main players around. So, we have a good broad base of property managers, of realtors, of retail customers, of contractors that kind of give our business a solid foundation and a customer base.
0: I love the story. It's just so inspiring. Was the closing of the whole deal process? I know the negotiations were long, but all the boring paperwork stuff, does it take long to kind of you know put the ink down?
1: What takes the most time is negotiating the purchase agreements and all the ancillary documents that go into closing a deal. So negotiating them is really the hardest part. That's the bottleneck. I mean, once you agree in principle on all the documents and you review it with your lawyers and you have accountants and whatnot sign off on the due diligence documents, then putting ink to paper doesn't take that long. You know, it it probably took me 45 minutes to sign all the documents or something. I mean, that is quite a long time. And there was a lot of paper that I had to sign. But really, the hardest part is just negotiating to get to that point.
0: Yeah. And do you have any lifestyle changes? Like, I guess from corporate, it's totally different. So is it a different set of work hours? Or are you like on a laptop seven at night trying to you know, do some extra work? Or what is that like? Lifestyle wise? Do you find it's, you know, in a good balance? Or, I guess, work in progress? I'm just curious about, you know, someone going start to finish, or they expect a total upheaval of the day to day?
1: Yeah, I mean, my life was really hectic and kind of turned upside down. The first six months are extremely stressful. So I mean, I would say that the last month or two, it's kind of starting to get better and better every day. I still have my moments of sheer panic and questioning whether this whole thing makes sense. So you know, I don't want to give the impression that it's all roses because it's really not. It's a very difficult thing to do and the transition is stressful and you have to navigate a lot of choppy waters. And especially with all the crazy things that are happening in our economy and our global supply chains, that's added another wrinkle that's been pretty difficult to manage. But lifestyle wise, you know, I can see a scenario where a year from now my work life balance is in a much better place and that I have a more stabilized team and a more stabilized life that doesn't require me to be so involved in the business day to day. So there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel for me. I'm still working really hard and will probably continue to work hard for the next three to six months. But I'm hopeful that if I continue to invest in the right people and the right systems and processes and continue to learn that this will be a solid lifestyle change for me and my wife
2: i have no doubt you'll get there and for anyone out there who thinks that it is all nice and dandy obviously that's not the case as you mentioned and it's always easy for people to hear or see the final result and think it must have been not that difficult at the very least to get to this point but we're trying to condense what you've experienced for the past year in less than an hour or so It is definitely impressive. And that's the thing is you want to work hard right now, maybe go through the stresses. Sometimes you might wonder, are you over leveraged, but you've been very strategic from what you've explained and it makes sense to me. So it is a very calculated step that you've taken acquiring this business. And it will take you a couple of years, I think, until you're completely settled and you know exactly what is happening and you're comfortable with what changes you might want to make or have made up to that point. So that's just a lesson for the people out there that think things will just happen. There's a lot of hard work. And I appreciate that you've shared all of that with us because it really paints a picture of acquiring a business, the negotiation part. And once you do, you have the staff to handle, which is very important. Some people are quite attached maybe to the previous owner or their managers. And some might think they should leave. Some might think that they don't like the way things are right now. So being able to just absorb and leave things the way they are and understand what really works, what needs to be improved. Very admirable, especially for someone as young as you are, very knowledgeable. I just got to say, you know, kudos to you. I'm very impressed.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, like I said, I'm still super early and I'm definitely not in a place where I can declare victory or say that this has been a smashing success. But, you know, so far it's working. It's playing out like I'd hoped. But it has been a very challenging six months that's required a lot of emotional growth, a lot of sleepless nights and a wild ride. But, you know, I think you kind of have to go through that trial by fire in order to make a huge wholesale change to your life. Like I said, you know, corporate life wasn't going to be something that I was super interested in for the long term. And right now, if you were to ask me today, I'm glad I made this change. That could change and I could very much regret it a year from now. I doubt that, but it's definitely a wild ride to go on right now.
0: Right on. And just as we wrap up here, is there a way our listeners can source? Like where do I go source a business? Where would you source your next business? Where did you find this one?
1: I mean, there's all sorts of online marketplaces for small businesses. You know, biz by sell is kind of the most common that people reference. So, you know, there's all sorts of localized brokered listings. There are you know, a ton of resources in the you know Twitter community and searchfunder.com that can help you find and you know, procure deals to put into your funnel. So there's a lot of resources online. I'd encourage everyone to kind of get involved in the Twitter community. It's an awesome small business Twitter community that's really helpful. People are super willing to share their experiences and help out. So that's kind of a great place to start for people who are interested in this path.
0: Just want to thank you so much for coming on look forward to your continued success. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Awesome. And do you have any Twitter you can plug? Where can people find you?
1: Yeah, my Twitter handle is at TOF underscore Edwards. So T-O-P-H underscore Edwards. Awesome. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks again. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself.
2: Thanks, everyone.